This is program C, 759. And we left off last time with our consideration of Herod the Great's refurbishing project of the temple. By the year 20 BC, when he had been king of the Jews for 18 years, he had done so much already to make Judea a special place, a, a, a uh, metropolitan place in the Roman Republic slash empire. But there was one project that he particularly wanted to do, and that was bring the temple of Zerubbabel and Joshua up closer to the standard of the temple of Solomon. And so he convinced the Jewish people, particularly the uh, priests that would need to do some of the work themselves, that he had all the material on hand and that it could be done in a very short period of time. And so it was. Uh, it was finished by 18 BC, within about a year and a half after it was started. But this grand temple, this shrine building, was not the only thing that Herod wanted to do to bring the temple up to the glorious uh, level that he imagined. He wanted to expand the public worship area. And in order to do that, he needed to expand the Temple Mount. And so what he does is he goes south about 600-some feet and builds a huge retaining wall. He goes off to the west a little ways as well, a couple hundred feet, builds a huge retaining wall, and does something similar over on the east side as well. And then his workers bring a huge amount of fill in to the area uh, made by those retaining walls. And then on top of the fill, he put this huge courtyard. And this the largest part of what we've just described is the outer courtyard, also known as the Court of the Gentiles, or the Court of the Nations. And in practical Middle Eastern uh, crowds of the time, uh, they could have jammed in probably several hundred thousand people at one time uh, in the area surrounding uh, the shrine building. It is at this time that the pinnacle of the temple comes into existence. On the top of the massive area that he's just been built, that he's just been uh, built, the, the Temple Mount as we know it today, he also put tall porticos, colonnades, where people could get in out of the sun and out of the rain and continue their worship at the fringes of the court of the Gentiles. And on top of that, there would have also been uh, areas that some people could walk, uh, certainly along the walls that were near these porticos. Uh, there would have been places to walk. And on the southeast corner of that Temple Mount complex, 
there would have been a drop-off into the Kidron Valley of about a couple hundred feet. Uh, Josephus describes it as being a place that would give you vertigo when you looked over the edge. Uh, so pretty amazing. I, I saw what remains of it. Uh, a lot of the Herod stones have long been torn down. Uh, but even with the remaining stones that are there, plus a few put by later peoples, it's still a pretty tall corner. Uh, Solomon's portico, which was made by King Herod, uh, not named because Solomon built it, but be in honor of Solomon. Uh, that was located on the eastern side of the Temple Mount, not far from where you would see uh, the eastern gate nowadays. And that is where the earliest Jewish believers in Jesus gathered, according to the book of Acts. Uh, Josephus, who saw this temple complex built by Herod when it was less than 100 years old, described it in this fashion. Uh, this comes from his, uh, let's see, this is from Wars of the Jews, Book 5, Chapter 5, Section 6. Now the outward face of the temple, in its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes. For it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a fairy fiery splendor, and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. Uh, now I would mention here, having just recently been to the to Jerusalem, that there is uh, the Dome of the Rock, the Golden Dome that sits probably right where the Holy of Holies existed uh, in the time of uh, the Jewish kingdom. It reflects the sun in a way very much described here, but because it's rounded, because it's curved, uh, it's not as severe as what we're talking about here because the front of the temple would have been flat facing east and it was gold-plated in such a way that you would get that full fury reflection of the rising sun. And it must have been an amazing sight for the pilgrims, the Jewish pilgrims coming over the Mount of Olives approaching the city of Jerusalem from the east, just like Josephus describes here. He has a little bit more he wants to say. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance, like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not gilt, they were exceedingly white. See, it was made of white limestone. On its top, it had spikes with sharp points to prevent any pollution of it by birds sitting upon it. A little fine detail there. We still have this problem with buildings in our own modern era. Uh, if you don't do something, the birds perch on the edges of the building top and they leave white traces of their feces all along. Uh, the uh, top of the building, and it just takes away from the beauty. So the Jewish designers of this came up with this idea of putting needle-sharp golden spikes really close 
along the edges of the uh, ledges all along the temple. And this kept the uh, pigeons from ever perching at that particular spot and leaving a mess. Uh, Josephus also mentions about Herod's temple that there was this dividing wall that surrounded the shrine area from the court of the Gentiles. And it barred Gentiles or unclean Jews from approaching any closer than this barrier. Uh, he describes in this way, there was a wall of a partition about a cubit in height, made eight, that'd be about 18 inches, made of fine stones. So it wasn't like a concrete wall. It was limestone. It was a, it was a pretty barrier. And so as to be grateful to the site, this encompassed the holy house and the altar and kept the people that were on the outside off from the priests. Interestingly enough, Paul seems to hint at that idea of this barrier when he's writing to the Galatians and telling them uh, that the law had been, shall we say, retired or fulfilled would be the more appropriate biblical uh, way of expressing it, by the death of Jesus Christ. And in describing this, he says that Jesus, by his death, broke down the dividing wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jewish people, so that in Christ we all become one. And that's I just love that, especially being a Gentile believer myself. I love the idea that I am as welcome in the presence of God through Jesus Christ as my brother who is a Jewish believer. Now on this wall there was a notice and it appeared at different points in three different languages. Uh, Greek and Hebrew Aramaic, the, the local language that was used in Jerusalem, and I think also in Latin if I'm not mistaken. Well this is what it said. We found one of the Greek plaques in part, and I actually saw it at the Israeli Archaeological Museum a few weeks back, and it's kind of cool to see something you've read about in history. It says, No Gentile may enter beyond the dividing wall into the court around the holy place. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. And by the way, uh, that... Uh, plaque was put up with the full authorization of the Romans uh, in the time of Jesus uh, because uh, they gave automatic death penalty permission to the Jewish people for anyone caught as a Gentile beyond that point. Uh, and Paul, of course, was thought by some people, or claimed by some people, to have brought a Gentile beyond that point, and that's why they were trying to beat him to death whenever the Romans rescued him in the book of Acts. And now, before I go on, I think I said uh, Galatians a while ago, should have said Ephesians. That's Ephesians chapter 2, uh, where the dividing wall is found in the mention of the Apostle Paul. Uh, you can find some places... Uh, on the internet where you can see good models of what Herod's temple might have looked like, 
One of the ones that really impresses me is the Urban, the urban Simulation Team of UCLA. And uh, they've put together uh, a project uh, that you can find. Uh, the website's a little bit ungainly. If you just put in 3D model of Herod's Temple, UCLA, that search parameter should get you to the place uh, where you can see all those exciting pictures. Uh, so the uh, Temple Mount, it took about seven years or so for all of that expansion work that we were just talking about to happen. So by the year 12 BC, the temple which the apostles were familiar with would have been completed. I want now to uh, move on to the decline of Herod the Great. Uh, the building of the temple, the expansion of the Temple Mount was probably the last great thing that he accomplished from a Jewish perspective. Uh, in the year 17 BC, Herod went to Rome to visit his friend and emperor, Kaiser Augustus. When he came back from that visit, he brought with him his two sons by the late Princess Miriamne. Uh, their names were Alexander, he was about 18, and Aristobulus, who was about 14. They had been there uh, being educated uh, in Roman culture, Roman custom, uh, since they were little boys. But they were very cold toward their father because they blamed him for the execution of their mother uh, back about 12 years earlier. Uh, but um, Herod also insisted that his friend Agrippa uh, should come to Judea and visit him. Now Agrippa was the number two guy in the Roman Empire, and so he does. And after Agrippa visits, Herod decides to go and visit Agrippa. Uh, Agrippa is governing the areas around the Black Sea, the eastern, actually we should say the northeastern part of the Roman Republic. So he travels, Herod travels all around the Black Sea and tries to help Agrippa out here and there. And uh, typically he was paying for things to be fixed out of his own personal finances. Uh, keep in mind, Herod was exceptionally wealthy. Uh, he'd never paid a bit of taxes in his entire life, and every bit of money that he'd ever invested when it returned, he got 100% of that profit for his own use. Uh, so Herod really uh, did a lot of good things from the perspective of the Roman Republic during the years 16, 17, excuse me, 16, 15, and 14 BC. Once he finished with that, um, he was getting ready to come back to Judea, to his own kingdom, and he became aware of a legal problem that Jewish people were running into uh, in Asia province. So he goes to his friend Agrippa, 
and insists that he step in and make sure that the Roman protections for the Jewish religion are kept intact, even far away from uh, the Judean kingdom itself. And Agrippa definitely agrees with that. He upholds those rights. The two of them part as great friends still. Uh, when Herod gets back in 14 BC from this trip, he gathered the Jewish people together and gave them a report on his travels over the last several years. And this is what we find in uh, Josephus's record of this address. Antiquities, Book 16, Chapter 2, Section 4. So when he came to them and gave them a particular account of all his journey, and of the affairs of all the Jews in Asia, how by his means they would live without injurious treatment for the time to come, he also told them of the entire good fortune he had met with, and how he had administered the government and had not neglected anything which was for their advantage. And as he was very joyful, he now remitted to them the fourth part of their taxes for the last year. So he gives them a 25% tax break for the current year because things are just looking so good in the Judean kingdom. Back to Josephus. Accordingly, they were so pleased with his favor and speech to them that they went their ways with great gladness and wished the king all manner of happiness. So in the year 14 BC, Herod seems to have been getting along pretty well with the majority of his Jewish subjects. He was the third most powerful person in the Roman Empire. Uh, by the way, it's sliding from republic to empire throughout this time period. And he is exceptionally personally wealthy, but he is also trying to make his kingdom, the Judean kingdom, the kingdom of the Jewish people uh, in the Middle East, the showpiece of the Roman Republic. And so he's done lots of building, uh, refurbished a lot of the old stuff. And so it was with no doubt um, that the Judean kingdom of Herod the Great was one of the best places to live on earth during this time period. I know that comes as a shock to many of you that have kind of been taught that uh, Judea was a backwater. It was being occupied by very hateful uh, Roman troops. None of that is true. Uh, there were some Jewish people that did not like uh, some of the Romanish that had been brought into the kingdom by Herod. But all in all, the majority of the people were very happy uh, to be living under his leadership at that time. But that being said, um, things in his family were not good, and this set the fuse for his own self-destruction. Uh, during his absence on his recent trip, his sister Salome had become more and more engaged in a battle of intrigue with her two nephews, the sons of Miriamne. Uh, they were now 21 and 17 years of age, and they were feeling their oats, shall we say, as the princes 
of the Hasmonean kingdom. Uh, so she warns Herod, who is now 60, that these two sons were planning on avenging their mother's death by killing him and then assuming control of his kingdom as the royal heirs of the Hasmonean kingdom. So Herod decides to short-circuit this plan by bringing his oldest son, Antipater, to court. Now, Antipater is 32, so he's a good 11 years older than uh, one of the princes that we've just been mentioning. But he was born prior to Herod being declared king of the Jews. So he is, by technical standards, a private person. He is not royalty, not in the true sense. Uh, but bringing Antipater into the court only made matters worse because the two sons of Miriamne, being of royal Hasmonean blood, felt very insulted that their older but non-royal brother was now in the court at Jerusalem. So in uh, 13 BC, when Agrippa uh, went back to Rome from his eastern provinces, uh, apparently he stopped by uh, uh, Judea or something, Herod personally uh, took Antipater to the capital city and placed him under his friend's care. So Herod goes back to Rome, says to his friend Agrippa, here's my eldest boy Antipater. I want you to kind of be with him, help him make good choices in his adult life. Now, again, that did not solve the problem because while Antipater was in Rome, he kept sending letters back to friends of his in Judea, undermining uh, the influence of his two younger brothers, the royal brothers. In 12 BC, uh, due in part because of the success of Antipater's smear campaign, things got really bad between King Herod, 62 now, and his sons, Alexander, 23, and Aristobulus, 19. It was so, so bad that Herod took them to Italy and brought them up on formal charges in front of the emperor for plotting his murder. So he brought them up in the royal court of the empire and charged them with a capital crime. Now, Augustus was stunned by this entire episode, and uh, he invested a lot of effort in trying to get the two sides back together again. And Josephus makes a point of including uh, all that uh, Kaiser was doing for this. So let's go ahead and read uh, what Josephus records. Um, it's from Antiquity 16, uh, chapter 4 and uh, sections four and five. Uh, it's also recorded, the actual speech of Herod is recorded in Wars chapter one, uh, or section book one, chapter 23. Uh, but this is what Josephus says. Kaiser, after some delay, said that although the young men were thoroughly innocent of that for which they were calumnated, which is a fancy word for lied about, 
Yet had they been so far to blame that they had not demeaned themselves toward their father so as to prevent that suspicion which was spread abroad concerning them. So Caesar says, I don't think they're guilty of plotting your death, Herod. However, they could have done a lot better in showing you proper respect to keep this rumor from being believed. Back to Josephus. He also exhorted Herod to lay all such suspicions aside and be reconciled to his sons, for that it was not just to give any credence to such reports concerning his own children, and that this repentance on both sides might heal those breaches that had happened between them and might improve that their goodwill to one, toward one another, whereby those of both sides excusing the rashness of their suspicions might resolve to bear a greater degree of affection towards each other than they had before. And after Caesar had given them this admonition, he beckoned to the young men. When therefore they had disposed to fall down to make intercession to their father, he took them up and embraced them as they were in tears and took each of them distinctly in his arms till not one of those that were present, whether free man or slave, was but deeply affected with what they saw. And so we end up with this great big cry session. They're hugging, they're crying, they're asking for the other one to forgive them. And so the emperor of the Roman Empire was doing some family counseling, and it was successful. And uh, then they thanked Caesar uh, for what he'd done, and they all took off back to Jerusalem. And um, Herod gets up in the, uh, in the temple, and he makes a speech about this trip. And uh, he at last turned his speech to the admission of his sons, exhorted those that lived at court and the multitude to concord, that is, to get along, and informed them that his sons were to reign after him. Antipater first, so the oldest boy, he's just declared, will be the heir of the kingdom of the Jews. And then Alexander and Aristobulus, the sons of Miriamne. So he made the royal boys second to their older non-royal brother. And you know that won't go over well. But he desired that at present they should all have regard to himself and esteem him king and lord of all, uh, since he, had not, he was not yet hindered by old age, but was in that period of life when he must be the most skillful in governing, and that he was not deficient in other arts of management that might enable him to govern the kingdom well and to rule over his children also. He further told the rulers under him and the soldiery that in case they should look upon him alone, their life would be led in a peaceful manner. So he basically tells the people, I'm still good to go, but here is the line of succession after I do die. 